Uh, it's such an honor to get to be with you all. I just, I don't want to preach to you this morning. I want to just, I want to talk to you. And I, that same anointing that was at the conference is still here. And the, the anointing on the conference had to do with an invitation from God to, to receive a revelation that will equip you and then send you out with a whole new life. Now, you know, one of the most difficult things that we got to deal with in Christian activity is the way words become cliches. And then they just lose their power. So when you start talking about revelation, that can get old. When you, got, when you start talking about impartation, that can even get old. Because we are so hungry for radical change in us that if we don't see what we call radical change real fast, we can easily get discouraged and start sliding back into old patterns of self-comfort. So uh, you, you, you take it from somebody that's been dying for radical change in me for 40 plus years. God never wants to just shove you into anything. The Holy Spirit leads. He doesn't push. When you feel pushed, it's not God. When you feel shoved, it's not God. The only time that shoving is even mentioned in the scriptures is in Micah chapter 7. He says, you shoved me, my enemy, that I might fall. But the Lord pick me up. And uh, so when you feel that push, that drive, that, that anxiety that you've got to do something and you, you know, that, that grueling kind of stuff, that's not the way the Father treats us. Okay? So uh, some of you are, are, are in a place in your life where you just say, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time and, and I just don't see much change in me. Uh, one of the things we talked about all weekend, and I don't want to be too repetitive for those of you who were there, but change happens out of relationship. It doesn't happen to gain relationship. It happens out of relationship. Uh, I, have a, I have a little note that I carry in my Bible except for this morning when I wanted to read it. I can't. But I have a little note that a young lady wrote me at a conference several years ago, and uh, it was a, it was, she wrote it after she had heard me speak on the fact that God is not the author of evil. There is no evil in God. God hates evil, and he has come to deliver us from evil. And her note was not belligerent, but it was honest. And she said, I heard what you said this morning, and I understand it with my head, but I can't get past the, the pain of wondering why he didn't save me from my father. Now, on Father's Day... I don't want to beat up on bad fathers. I don't want to do that on any other day. Well, it's not, 
Let me correct that. Depends on the bad father. But I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to focus on on all the heartache and pain. We all know that. You know, you don't need me to get up here and talk about the failure of fathers. We've heard that now for thirty years. We've experienced it in some of, some of our cases for thirty years or more. Many of us in this room could tell some really painful stories about the agony of having an abusive father or another kind of agony, having an absent father. And you know, after all these years, I've learned something about us. We're more damaged by absence than we are by abuse. There's two kinds of hurt in people. There's hurt caused by breakage, and there's hurt caused by neglect. And of the two, neglect is harder to heal. So, uh, you know, people tend to compare their pain with other people's pain. And then they think, well, I didn't get, I didn't get tortured. I mean, my dad was not evil. He just didn't care if I lived or died. And so they think because they don't have scars on their body, they pay no attention to the scars on their soul. And the body, the Bible says the, a man can bear his infirmity, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? See, Proverbs 18. And a wounded spirit has to do with being communicated to that you don't matter. You are of no value. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. That's why it's so terrible when someone tells you they've sinned against you and they ask your forgiveness. If your response is, oh, don't worry about it, it didn't matter. That's the wrong response. Somebody asks for forgiveness, you need to say, well, of course I forgive you. You need to turn to them and give them your full attention and then respond to them correctly. But we tend to say, oh, it's okay. no big deal. And when you tell somebody their forgiveness is no big deal, you're not, respect you're not respecting them. You're, you're dissing them. You, you understand? So uh, this, this, young lady's, this young lady's note was an honest note. She was actually asking me, how can I trust the love of the Father God in the face of what happened to me as a child? Why didn't he save me from it? Now, I want to, I want to contrast that note to a conversation I had yesterday. I had a conversation yesterday with a, a precious woman who faced the darkest days of World War II in her own backyard. And uh, at, a, at 12 years old, she's on her way home uh, with some friends and in Rotterdam, uh, Holland. The, the Nazis have invaded, and uh, some women meet her on her approach to the village, and they say, don't go, don't go, go the other way, run the other way. And because she obeyed that warning, she escaped capture because they were gathering up all the Jews, and she was a young Jewish girl. 
and she escaped and uh, walked to a farm, and she she got uh, blood all over her feet from walking and running through whatever, and somebody gave her a pair of men's shoes that didn't fit. So she ran on more and more and more miles in those horrible shoes. Now, by the time I get to this part of the story, I'm she's about my mother's age and i'm i'm looking her i'm looking her in the eye and i'm about to cry and i'm thinking i i look down at her feet you know those those precious feet and i said how and she saw it in my eyes and i want you to show you i want to show you the difference i'm not showing you the difference to to put down on the first girl's note. I just want to show you a difference in perspective. She said, you don't understand my story yet. I'm not talking about what happened to me. She said, just listen. And she kept telling me these horrible stories. <laughs> and I thought, I thought she weren't telling me stuff to upset me, and I'm really getting upset. And she kept telling me the stories, and then she talked about how the, she, she goes finally to a door and knocks on the door out of desperation, and the, the, the wife of the chief of police of Rotterdam uh, welcomes her in and realizes what's happening, takes her upstairs to a secret room and hides her for seven months in that, in that room. And then uh, uh, various other things that she told me, they were all hair-raising, painful. And finally, she looked me in the eye and she said, I can see you're misunderstanding my heart. I'm not telling you what happened to me. I'm telling you what God did to deliver me through it. She said, every time I was in need, something came, somebody came to intervene and care. And she said, here I am, saved out of it. Now, part of this is the difference in the perspective of her generation and her culture to our generation and our culture. And uh, you understand Americans thought the tribulation period began when gas got to be over $2. <laughs> and uh, we, we think we're being persecuted when somebody at work makes a snide remark about our Bible on our desk and we'll actually go up to get prayer for the trauma of that <laughs> you know I mean let's face it we're, uh, we're wimps as a culture we're spiritually wimps and so we don't understand uh, a lot of things. But what broke my heart about this letter is that this young lady, I know she loves the Lord. I know she's seeking help. Uh, but but I, I could, she's one of hundreds of people that I've talked to who have that same question. And I remember uh, years ago when I began pastoring uh, in Texas, I was preaching a sermon one Sunday morning on forgiveness. Basic. Matthew 18, you know the story in Matthew 18. I'm just preaching on 
forgiving our enemies. And I, I looked over to my left, and standing at the bottom of the steps, as I walked off the steps, was a, a very attractive woman in her mid-30s, uh, and I expected, you know, some kind of nice statement about what a great message I just preached. And, how are you? <laughs> and uh, she, she, she looked me in the eye and she said, so you're new, huh? She said, I got to sit through this kind of stuff. If I got to hear any more messages like this, I'll quit coming to this church. And she stormed out. And, uh. About a week later, I got an emergency call from a man who was telling me that his wife had had some kind of emotional breakdown. He had come home and found her curled up under the table in the kitchen, and uh, he was asking me to come over. Well, I came over, and it was the same woman. And it began what turned out to be a long about a year-long episode of walking her through the memory of some of the most horrible abuse I'd ever encountered at that time uh, at the hands of her own father. Not only at the hands of her own father, but at the hands of the pastor of the church. It was so evil and so bad, I'm not going to repeat any of it to you because I don't want to put it in your imagination. But uh, at the end of working through all of this, and if you're interested in this story for real, we have it on various recordings of different teachings that, that we've done because this precious woman later became part of our team and was very effective in helping other people. But the thing that made the great difference in her story from, from other people that we deal with is uh, she went through this whole pattern of how can I trust God? How can I trust a God who would even let this happen to me? And uh, in order to get to that point of, of dealing with that question, we had to first work through a whole lot of other things like getting butcher knives out of her hand and helping her not go to bed, bed with butcher knives. Uh, because she was having flashbacks and she was thinking she was back at that childhood age and she was going to protect herself this time and things like that. Well, we worked through all that. But when she finally seemed to be making real progress, the, and I will tell you this, after months of praying with her to get to this point, she came in one day and she said, because uh, I, I'd been talking to her about forgiveness. See, this is why she was so angry about that message on forgiveness. Forgive? What do you mean forgive? And so I, I get her to the point, I'm praying, Lord, how do I help her now? And the Lord said to me in my heart, he said, she thinks forgiveness means pardon. She thinks if you forgive somebody that the case is thrown out of court. You've got to help her understand that she's the one who forgives and I'm the one who judges. See, this is something we don't get across to people sometimes. And so I, that morning I, I explained all that to her. I said, you know, I realize you've been thinking that if you forgive your father, that means he's just completely off scot-free and there's no judgment on him for what he did to you. And that's not the reason. The reason you forgive him is so you won't become like him. 
because you become what you don't forgive. And lights just went off in her eyes, and she looked over at me, and she said, okay, I can pray now. And this is how she prayed, and I'm going to edit it. <laughs> she said, Lord, because she wouldn't call God Father. She wouldn't call him Father. Father for her was a dirty word. She said, Lord, I think I got it now, and I want you to know that as of this moment, because I don't want to become like that SOB, I forgive him, and I pray, Lord, that you will just deal with his sorry blankety blank, 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 <laughs> and just uh, thank you, Lord, that you delivered me from the burden of carrying his sorry blank, and you just, uh, you just do with him what you want to. Amen. <laughs> That was a good prayer. Let me tell you, I would have been really scared if she had prayed, Oh, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I forgive my father. I just forgive him. That would scare me. People who pray little religious proper prayers like that go out and kill somebody. No, she prayed a real prayer from her real heart. And she's not a cussing woman. She, she's not a woman who uses bad language. And I'm not trying to affirm ugly, bad language. Please understand me. I'm just trying to affirm honesty and truth before God. And when you knew, if you knew what she'd been through, you'd, you'd cuss too, maybe. Okay, so I think, okay, we're making progress, okay? We're making progress. So I don't see her for a couple of weeks, and then one day, unannounced, without an appointment, she bursts through my office door, and she comes over to where I'm sitting, and she looks me in the eye, and she said, I got a question. What? Where was God? I knew what she meant. I mean, I didn't have to say, what do you mean? <laughs> and an answer came from right here it didn't come from here because I'm not that smart an answer came roaring up out of the core of me I mean a roar I didn't yell at her but there was a power in it and I said I'll tell you where he was. He was hanging on a cross between heaven and earth, dying at the hands of cruel soldiers in order to forgive your father. Now, I would have never dreamed to say, forgive your father. Because, see, I didn't want to forgive the blankety-blank either. <laughs> She, she took a couple of steps back and she put her hands on her hips and she said, okay. <laughs> and she walked out the door and I didn't see her for three weeks. And I mean, I am, I said, you know, I know I've made her crazy. She's gone home and killed herself, you know. And, I, <laughs> and I, the Lord wouldn't let me call her. He said, don't you call her. Don't you interfere with what I'm doing in her heart. Three weeks go by, and 
there she comes again, through the door, no appointment, no call, just bursting into my private little world. <laughs> and she said, I've come to tell you goodbye as my counselor. I said, see, I made her mad. She's leaving the church. That's I'm, stupid stuff, we think. You know. <laughs> and she said, I'm leaving you as my counselor. I'm not leaving the church, for heaven's sakes. She said, I'm finished. I'm, I'm graduated. I'm, I'm through. I said, why? She said, I heard what you said to me about Jesus dying to forgive my father. And I realized that my forgiveness toward my father was, was real, but it was very shallow. She said, I forgave him as much as I knew how. But then I began to recognize in my process of cleansing, I had moments when I could have hurt my own child. And then I realized I could have easily become my father. And she said, I realized now, too, that I am, I'm at the age he was when he hurt me. And I, I began to think about all the things in me that were potentially just like him. And she said, when you told me to forgive, that Jesus died to forgive my father, I realized Jesus loved my father and would have delivered him just as much as he loved me and has delivered me. And when I understood that, something in me shifted. And now, she said, I only have one desire I wish my father could have lived long enough to have received the help I've received. May God have mercy on him wherever he is and if there's any possibility of his redemption, may it be so. How do we really change, folks? Later on, I heard Debbie standing in a conference, speaking and giving her testimony. And I learned a lot about what was going on inside her heart and mind that I didn't know at the time. But one of the things that she said that was so life-changing for me, I needed to hear it, was she said, you know, I had all the why questions. Why did you let it happen? Why weren't you there with me? Why were you there with me? See, I, I spent time telling her God was, you know, the Bible says a sparrow doesn't fall without your father knowing it. And that didn't help her a bit because she said, well, if he knew it, why didn't he do something? Right? And so uh, this is what this note from this girl was asking. This note from this girl was asking, why didn't God save me? Well, here's Debbie standing up saved from the worst you can imagine. And she said, I am saved from it. I, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm breathing. Now, see, there's something in us that wants to say, yeah, but. And I don't have time on Sunday morning. I thought I was going to do this, and my wife reminded me that it would be very stupid to try on a Sunday morning to tackle the big questions 
of why God allows evil when he hates it so much and why God allows children to suffer. I think there's something in us that we can, we can almost bear it to, to, to think about what grown-ups go through, but when it's children, did you know that that thing in you that is angry over children being mistreated comes from God? It's God in you that is angry over the mistreatment of children. Don't think for one minute that comes out of your lily white soul. <laughs> now, Debbie said in her testimony, she said, I had to learn to stop asking the why questions. And she said, I learned to ask the what questions. What am I supposed to do about this? Okay? And she said, then I learned that the love that I was looking for that had failed me so badly as a child was still there watching over me to bring me to the point of redemption. And that once I was redeemed from it, not only would it no longer matter what happened to me in the long run, but what happened to me would be turned into healing power for other people. Now, are you hearing this? Yes. Now, don't misunderstand this. This could be very easily misunderstood. I had another lady walk up to me in a conference right here in Miami a few years ago, and she was... She, her hands were trembling and she was a nervous wreck and you could tell she was not stable. I mean, she wasn't loony, but she was just fragile. And she was telling me about how uh, she was horribly mistreated as a child by her father and so forth. And then she was saying, but I know that it was all God's plan because uh, I've been able to help lots of women who have been badly hurt. And she could hardly function. And I, I just sat her down and I said, now you got to hear, please hear me. If you think God predestined you to be raped so you can help rapists, God is crazy. And any preacher that tells you God predestined your evil suffering so that he could glorify himself through it is crazy. So Debbie was not saying God let it happen for good purpose. If you are comforted in your sorrow by making God the author of it, you're being comforted by a demonic accusation against the character of God. Amen. Folks, if there's one thing you see in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father in action, it is his utter hatred for everything that destroys people. Show me one time in Scripture where Jesus sends somebody away because their sickness can't be healed because God gave it to them to make them humble. 
Show me one place where God, Jesus rejoices in somebody's demon-possessed condition because somehow in their evil suffering, God will get glory out of it. The only way God gets glory out of any of that is when Jesus destroys it. First John 3, verse 8, For this cause was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I love that word, destroy, there. Acts 10, 38, that's Acts 10, 38. First uh, John 3, 8 says, Jesus came to, was manifested to undo the works of the devil. Everywhere Jesus went, go to a funeral, no funeral. Can't have a funeral without a body. So, so Debbie, Debbie learned, she helped me and Mary learn some things. This is in very early, early days of our dealing with exceptionally broken people. I wasn't equipped for it. I had not been trained for it. But what helped her get through it was that we loved her. We loved her. We loved her. And so I want to say to you this morning, if I don't get anything else across to you, because see, there's an anointing on this body for this kind of care. Gives you something to look forward to, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I just saw Ralph say, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> but there's a there's a every body every congregation has its own particular kind of anointing. You know, Antioch was the the sending out church of the first century. Uh, uh, Jerusalem was was more theological. Uh, Corinth probably had a ministry to the sexually broken, among other things. Uh, but the fact is, all the churches are called to do the basics. But some churches have a special gift and blessing on them to to address certain things that other churches may not have that same anointing to do. And you have this kind of blessing on you that can. Take in broken people. And if you, if you don't have all the psychological answers and you don't have all the uh, medical training, that's okay. If you love and love and love and, and then love some more and then get to the point where you can't stand them and then you choose to love just a little more, they get well. They begin to get well. Um, now, how to do that, I can't tell you on a Sunday morning. I can't tell you on a Monday afternoon or a Tuesday night. There's not enough time. You have to learn it as you do it. You, you, you learn to love and love and love. And sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes people will bring, you'll bring people into your home thinking, I'm going to love them to wholeness. And then you have to make other arrangements after a while because you bit off more than you could chew. Have any of you ever done that? Yeah. <laughs> Look at all the hands that just went up. See? Well, you know what, though? Uh, the fact that you tried and, and it didn't work out right doesn't mean that you no longer have any responsibility in that area. It means you, you learned a lesson and now you go do it wiser. But you still do it. But you do it wiser. Because you see... Uh, uh, it would take me too long this morning to try to give you an understanding of why God allows evil. But let me tell you this much about God allowing evil. You think you're burned out by it? You think it 
stretches your patience, you're not holy like he is. You're not righteous like he is. You're angry at evil, and you yourself have the capacity to be evil. What do you think an absolutely holy God feels in the face of evil? And you only see a few aspects of evil in limited, limited ways. It roars up before his presence 24-7. And yet, why does he keep holding back his wrath against it? Because the day the wrath is poured out, it will be poured out not only on the evil, but on the people who are still connected to the evil. And he wants to save the people before he destroys the evil. So he's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So therefore, a thousand years to God is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years so God keeps holding back wrath in, in hopes of more repentance and redemption. And when you are badly hurt by evil, I don't know if I can get this across, but I'm going to try. If you are badly hurt by evil and you, you're wasting time trying to figure out why it happened, you are trying to find an answer to a non-question. Evil has no meaning. Now, I told you that I, I told you I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> Evil is not a Thing. Evil is a parasite that feeds off of good. Evil is a twist of something that should have been straight. The twist has no inherent right to exist. God didn't create it with the twist. The twist came by a choice of will, either satanic or human, or both. So when, when evil things happen to people, and we say, what is the meaning? We are actually inadvertently accusing God of being behind it because what we're really saying is God must have had some purpose in this. First of all, there is no purpose in mindless, cruel evil. That's what makes it evil. It's purposeless. You know, if, if a doctor is having to cause terrible pain in order to save your life, that has meaning. But he's not causing the pain. The pain is a byproduct of his attempt to save your life. And the pain disappears once you're recovered and you don't spend the rest of your life focusing on the existence of the pain that happened one time. You may say, man, it hurt, but I'm alive. Just like that sweet lady yesterday was saying, 
Clay, you're missing the point. I'm not telling you these terrible stories to commemorate the suffering I went through. I'm celebrating how God took care of me through it. Now, on this Father's Day, what, what, what do I most want you to get out of all this? A lot of our suffering as children, uh, if we were fatherless or if we had a, a broken father or if we had uh, a, an absent father, a lot of our suffering is an echo of what we suffered as children 24-7. Why do I know that? Because people with healthy fathers don't ask why questions. I've noticed it for 30 plus years. People who had loving, present fathers do not come to me, and I haven't done a scientific study of this, but I've just gone by my own experience, but I, it's a pretty considerable experience. People who had loving fathers don't ask why did bad stuff happen to me? They ask, what can I do to overcome this? It's the numbers of us, and there's lots of us, who did not have healthy fathers, did not have loving fathers, who are always looking for answers. And it's always angry. I want answers. And they're saying, God needs to explain himself to me. God needs to come clean with me. God needs to show me why. Why? If he's so loving, if he's so good, if he's so caring, if he's so all-powerful, he could have done something, and he didn't. So don't tell me about this loving God. Now, this is not original with us, this thinking. This has been a problem down through history. I mean, you can look at news articles that just go right down the line and uh, right down to the present moment. There's been articles and philosophical papers and whole books written on if God is good, then he's not powerful. If God is powerful, then he's not good. That's open and shut case. There's no more questions about it. We've got it all figured out. Now, the problem with that illogic is uh, you don't have enough information to come to a conclusion. All you're operating in is your own private experience, and it's been bad, so you project that out on the whole universe and then take the omnipotent, omniscient position you say God doesn't have. So you set yourself up as God. We can't figure out all of this, but there are a lot of answers, and I wish I had about 14 hours to get into <laughs> it with you. And if you'll go on the website, you can see some stuff that will help you. And I'm, I'm, I'm writing on this right now because I, I know, one thing I know about this generation, I'm talking about you guys that are 30 and, and younger, you've got to have answers to this that the church hasn't been giving. And to say that God just works it all out because God has a great plan doesn't hold water with these kids. They ask the logical question of, you're telling me that God is really setting up this whole thing and, and the tsunami that killed all those people was God's will and uh, uh, the, the tornado that just ripped through the heart of America was somehow God's will and when God just is in the mood, he sends some terrible things just to remind everybody he's the boss and I'm supposed to love him? 
kind of like a friend of mine talked about going to see Uncle George when he was a kid. He said we'd all get dressed up and go on Sunday morning to visit Uncle George. Uncle George lived up on a high hill in a big stone house. And he said we'd all get dressed up and Mom and Dad would get us to go see Uncle George. And we'd all go to see Uncle George. And then Uncle George would sit there and talk to us about something that we didn't understand for about an hour. And then at the end of it, you get the parable here. Don't you? you get the end. Then Uncle George would take us down in the basement and he would show us the furnace. And he would point at all the carcasses in there of people that didn't love Uncle George. Then he would close. You understand he didn't have an Uncle George. He's making a point. He said we close. He closed it up, and then we'd all go back up the stairs, and we'd all leave. And Mom and Dad would turn and say, "Children, don't we all love Uncle George?" <laughs> oh, how we love Uncle George. That's been some people's church experience their whole life. Now, there's something in psychology called cognitive dissidence. See, psychology is, is one of those disciplines where you take common sense things and put fancy words to them and then charge a lot of money to get a degree knowing what those words mean. And cognitive dissidence means I got two things going on inside of me that don't match and it's making my stomach hurt. That's what, okay, cognitive dissonance is, is a, 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 an Anglo from Switzerland eating really hot Cuban food. <laughs> they don't match. And, and cognitive dissonance is happening in most Christians all the time, but somehow preachers call it uh, uh, mystery. It's a mystery. Well, you bet it's a mystery, dude. Here's the mystery. That you expect me to love a God who you just told me puts people in his furnace downstairs if he don't like them. Now, folks, there is a hell. And I ain't got time to get into all that this morning, but let me tell you, if there wasn't a hell, God would not be trustworthy. Because you're just, at, you're just as angry at God if he doesn't do what is just as you are if he doesn't do what is loving. And when you think about Pol Pot killing a million people and Mount Tung, who our current politicians love to quote, Mao Zedong killing so many Chinese, we, we'll never know how many. But members of this government quote him like he's a great politician. Bow to him, yeah. I'm grateful there's a hell. I'm grateful there's justice. 
Now, I'm not saying hell is what some preachers have turned it into, some kind of horrible, horrible torture chamber. And I read all these charismatic books that come out about people who got taken to hell, and I don't buy them. I don't believe them. I think they're full of baloney. I think they're a means of the devil to obfuscate and cover up the real hell. You know what the real hell is? It's that selfishness in Clay McLean that if God didn't deliver me from it would eventually grow into hell. It's that lust in me that ever craves and never gets enough that will one day become a worm that never dies and a fire that can't be quenched and God has to deliver me from it or it will eat me up forever. That's hell. It's the hell of self. And it... You know, whatever the Bible is talking about when it's talking about hell, I'll tell you this, it's not talking about our Father in Heaven being some monster who enjoys torturing people because they angered Him. Okay? Well, I'm trying to give you at least three or four things to think about before lunch. <laughs> but what I want you to understand this morning is... I get back to my foundational statement, and this is what I want you to take home with you. We ask the why questions when we don't believe we have a loving Father. We ask why, why. You know why? Because when you ask why questions, you're saying, I don't know who I am, and I don't know what I'm about, and I don't know where I'm going, and so when bad things happen to me, it even deeply more so makes me feel like I am nothing. I've got to have an answer. If you can't give me meaning to why this or that happened to me, then I've, I have no existence. I'm going to disappear. You've got to give me meaning. And you're trying to get your meaning from your suffering. No, a person who's got a loving father doesn't need answers to the why questions because he's got his, inse- his security in the what questions. What am I? I am a child of God. What am I called to do? Glorify him and love him and be loved by him forever. So what happens if evil hits me? Evil hits me, it was a non-issue. It left scars. Yes, it's real. I'm not saying it's not real, but it has no ultimate meaning. I don't get my meaning from why I got raped. I don't get my meaning from why my father was an alcoholic who tried to kill my mother when I was four. I don't get my meaning from why the tornado hit the house and wiped out half my family at a family reunion for no reason. I don't get my meaning out of, you name it, I get my meaning out of my relationship with the king of the universe who came to the earth as a man in order to break the power of meaninglessness evil. Can you get that? Yeah, please do, baby. Clay said that evil is meaningless. And there's been evil done against you or you've done evil against somebody else. So how is that changed? How do you begin to ask the what questions instead of the why questions? You have to take the evil that was done against you or that you did against another and bring it to the cross and join it to the one on the cross who took on his body into his self, into his personhood, all the evil 
in the universe, not just yours, not just the one who hurts you or not just the one who you hurt. And then a miracle happens. All of a sudden, that suffering joined to Christ has meaning in redemption. Because it has been bought to the one who killed death, who kills evil, who kills all of it. Then that evil has a meaning because it has been joined to Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who not only saves us in our spirit, but saves us from all the injury that any man or woman or nature or devil can do against us. This is the redemption story. And Jesus was on that cross taking in all this hurt and suffering, not only to save us in our spirit, not only to redeem us from the works of evil that are abroad and loose in the world, but to give us life. It wasn't a deal just to get saved and that's it. It was a deal to enter into life. He was redeeming us back home. Home to Father God. Father God. Happy Father's Day, Papa. <laughs> Happy Amen. Father's Day, Papa. Amen. 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 Now, I got I to gotta, I gotta put a parenthesis in this, okay? Because some of you are thinking it. I'm glad you're thinking it because it means you're thinking. Okay. You're suggesting that tornadoes that ripped through the heart of America and the tsunami that killed thousands of children was somehow outside God's control? No, it wasn't outside his control. And this is, you're going to have to, there's no quick answers. There's no easy answers for questions this hard. Okay, but I want you to just think about this. You may not like it. You may get mad at me for bringing it up, but think about it. I hope I bother you with it for days. <laughs> One thing that Western Christianity has failed to do is acknowledge the existence of satanic power. Oh, we doctrinally say we believe it. But you let, let a conversation come up at a table with a, a group of denominational Christians over demon possession and look at the reactions. I spent uh, a, a period of time in Switzerland years ago. My one job with Youth with a Mission was to minister to the Western missionaries who were coming back from third world countries mentally on the verge of total breakdowns, on their way back to be hospitalized and possibly leave the mission field. You know what was wrong with them? They had gone into third world countries and made fun of the witch doctors. Well, now you might think, well, what are, you, are we supposed to be afraid of witch doctors? No, I'm not afraid of witch doctors. 
But there's a big difference between me not being afraid of a witch doctor because I have faith in Christ and me not being afraid of a witch doctor because I don't believe in the supernatural, period. And the, the pagan who believes in the witch doctor is closer to the kingdom of God than the Western-educated fool who doesn't believe the witch doctor has any power. So they would go in there and make fun of the witch doctors and end up under a curse and lose their mind. Some of them I could help and some of them I couldn't help. Guess who I couldn't help? The ones who just attributed their sickness to some kind of medical malady. The ones who saw what they were under and were terrified of it got help. Am I making any sense? Jesus stood up in a boat. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. The storm is unbelievable. His highly trained fishermen disciples who understand the, the weather and should not be so scared are scared out of their mind. Because this must be a whopper of a storm. Jesus stands up in the boat and says, not peace, be still. <laughs> That's not what he said. He said, shut up. Who was he talking to? His father? There's a power in the world that the Bible absolutely affirms, but that modern Christianity has ignored. It is not an ultimate power. God is not in a tug of war with it. But God even, listen, this is something we just don't get. God even respects the devil. When I say that, I mean... God doesn't just strong-arm the devil because he can. That would make God a bully. Michael the archangel in Jude, the Bible says, even Michael the archangel doesn't bring a railing accusation against Satan, but says, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. That word railing there in Greek is blacks. It's, the, it's basically a word that means stupid or uh, cussing. Really, it's, it's, it's a word that means to talk down to. And God would not let even Michael, the archangel, who as far as we know is the highest angel in, in the arm, army of God, even he did not treat Satan like he was nothing. Now, I've heard preachers, and you've heard them, make fun of the devil. The, the New Testament does not make fun of the devil. It doesn't. If you're going to be biblical, you're just going to say what Scripture says and no more. And you're not going to call him slewfoot and make, you know, make stupid remarks about him. Oh, you know, oh, devil, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, come on, devil, we'll take you on, that kind of stupid stuff. I want to tell you that in that terrible circle where that tsunami hit, there's more gods than there are grains of sand. And that territory has given itself over to worshiping those demon spirits for thousands of years. If a child dies in the horrible outbreak of demonic dragon breath, that child goes to be with the Lord. 
You know, that doesn't satisfy me. What can I do for you? The children are dead. They were killed in a horror. God's not the author of the horror. But he came and endured a horror, the horror, in order to salvage those children with one swoop. And when, when, a, when a devil kills a child, the child becomes that devil's judge. Because Paul said, we will judge the fallen angels. <laughs> if you could just hear the children looking at us right now saying, don't weep for us, dudes. I know, I, look, I can't answer everything this morning. I, can't, I, I couldn't if I had time. But is this helping at all? Look, you can't, listen, you can't sit around and say, I love God, I, I just love Jesus, and then some tragedy happened, and you think, without saying it, God, what are you really like? Oh, I love God, praise the Lord, I just love, I just love Uncle George. We're going to wake up one day and all this is going to be put right in a way you never imagined. There's a line in Lord of the Rings that I wish was in the movie, but they didn't get it. They couldn't do everything, I know, but in the book. That's why you need to read the books. Please read the books. But Sam, Sam walks in and he finds Frodo alive and he finds everybody alive and he said is everything sad going to come untrue yes everything sad is going to come untrue God's going to mend the world in the last book of the Bible in Genesis, in Revelation 22, which echoes Genesis, we see the healing of the nations from the tree of life. What's the tree of life for? For the healing of the nations. I don't want to fly out of here. I don't want to get raptured out of here. Not until we have seen every tongue, every tribe, every kindred, every nation, in the whole world, wrapped under the talit of the healing wings of the Father God. Let's pray.